Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey Houston, Con's prices are invincible. That means prices have been cut low, as in amazingly low, as in won't be beat. In fact, we're backing it up with our low price guarantee. Invincible prices on appliances, furniture, electronics, mattresses, and more. Not invincible enough for you? How about free next day delivery on appliances, TVs, and mattresses? And payment options for everyone, whether you have good credit or building. Visit Con's today and find out what invincible feels like. Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. Let's take a trip back to the start of the universe and up to the end as we follow the story of everything and maybe just the story of a boy's relationship with his family. We're talking Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life this week on Zach on Film. Can I ask a question, Zach? Go ahead, Matthew. Start us off. What the holy hell did we just watch? <laughs> well, that's fun. <laughs> yes. Uh, that was kind of my thought the first time I ever watched uh, The Tree of Life back a couple of years ago. And it has stuck with me and I love this movie and it. Uh, I mean, really, the reason I picked this movie was one cinematography to uh, I, I mean, really, the main reason is that it kind of just opened my eye, mind to this uh, like non linear, like mm-hmm. what the heck is happening plot plots, uh, plot uh, style. That, uh, you know, really draws me into other movies that I, I kind of just enjoy it that it's not the like really main three stru- act structure of films that we used to watching most weeks. That it's well, just something a little bit different. I would say it's still even in its non uh, linear narrative, it's still telling a three act structure. In the beginning, you're learning yeah. about his early life and how at times things were really good. And then you learn about his rebellious years and how things got really bad. And then the times where in the third act where his dad was away trying to change his life uh, and how it changed the family until ultimately in that third act where they left uh, Texas uh, to go do something else. That's kind of your three acts from the young child's point of view. But then when you look <laughs> from the Sean Penn point of view, there's also three acts. He is in work in the morning. He's trying to make um, – um, reconcile with his father in the afternoon. And then uh, my read on it is that he's dead in the evening. Okay. Yeah. But even if you break it down like that, I mean, that's like six acts almost because each one of those is truncated by a long time. And then you have about a 30 minute uh, creation sequence. We actually <laughs> the whole we see the response to the death of a character before we're actually introduced to that character. 
the movie opens yeah. with us finding out that a character died and the emotions tied to that. And then about 40 minutes later, after, you know, the whole universe is, is reborn. And by the way, the universe is reborn in the middle of this movie, folks. It's, it's, <laughs> it's simultaneously terrifying and amazing. But I'm sitting here and I'm watching what I think is this weird period piece movie set in, I'm going to say, 1956. It's the 1950s. Then all of a sudden, the Big Bang happens, mm -hmm. which you got to give them credit. That's always in the background of everybody else's movie. The Big Bang theoretically happened. Or, you know, whatever you believe. I don't know. Uh, the, the, the great gargle flunk, uh, you know, took a piece of snot out of its armpit and it became the universe. Whatever you believe. But this, hey, yeah. the structure <laughs> of this movie is so incredibly bizarre. To me, I don't know. I, 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 mean, I will tell well, you. There well, certainly... didn't you. Didn't you say, Zach, that there were like a million feet of film and there was a bunch of stuff just totally. There's like three well, of the movies that were totally left on the cutting yeah, room floor. Yeah, there's a couple of different interviews that Emmanuel Lubetsky did, who's the director of photography for this, that uh, a couple times he said, well, I think what people mostly believe is that he said he exposed a million feet of film for this. And that the original cut, uh, or that Malik was toying the idea with putting a six-hour cut of this movie together. Yeah. When this movie comes in about two twenty, I think somewhere around there, somewhere around there. Uh, but that's something that Malik's kind of known for. He really hasn't done uh, like a lot of movies in the time that he's been working from you know like Badlands and stuff when he was doing uh, a couple decades ago. His number of films is down, but you know, uh, one of the first things I ever learned about Terrence Malick was that uh, he did this movie called Thin Red Line, and he cut out about six A-list actors after they had already shot their entire scenes, and the movie was just too long, and he had to trim it down. So we cut. I, I mean, you can look it up, but the it's A-list actors, multiple of them that he completely cut from his film because he just shoots so much, and then um, he discovers more of a narrative in the editing room. Mm -hmm. which uh i mean kind of like other movies that we've talked to in this last couple of weeks uh that whole process is just so fascinating to me of especially the relationship between the cinematographer and the director kind of like we talked about last week with the great beauty um and in really the cinematography is such a huge part of the tree of life that i mean to even talk about this film without bringing up what the heck was going on with all of their camera moves and just seemingly random bits almost. I mean, you have a couple of shots of sunflowers and then you just have a whole range of images that you're shown on the screen. Uh, I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of this film. It, it feels like memories because even when the scenes break down and you see a linear chunk of scene, it's not quite right. And the cinematography no, no. just, so here's, here's, here's my take on this film is that we are seeing the final moments of Sean Penn's life um, in that he is in, I mean, his quote unquote office as an architect in the middle of a lobby. And he's kind of looking around like, where am I multiple times in, uh, throughout the piece is basically him in purgatory uh, waiting on something. Uh, my guess is that we're seeing this through his mind's eye and not a literal Sean Penn character in here. Um, 
as he is riding up and down the elevator in this scene, as he's passing the floors, at least in my, I don't know which second or third take of watching this film, sounds like an EKG meter Mm -hmm. uh, that he is hooked up to. And in those times, he's trying to make... Uh, reconciliation with his past life and the the one thing that is preventing him from moving on is this reconciliation of the father and the loss of his his brother RL uh, because of this and in order to for us or maybe even for Sean Penn's character to understand what that problem was we have to go back and look at those moments that caused the greatest conflict and are preventing Sean Penn's character from letting go once he's gone through that and once he understands then he dies, and then we get the scene at the beach at the end where, um, at the end of time, where everybody at the end of time all gets to gather and do their thing um, on the beach of the universe yeah, sure. or heaven or wherever it is. The yeah. spiritualist. What do you think yeah. about that, Reed, Rodrigo? I think it's pretty strong. I think you yeah. can definitely uh, find a lot of evidence for that. Uh, yeah. You guys want to hear my read? Sure. Yeah, yes, sure. please. All right. So here's my read. Uh, we are like as the viewers as the thing that is watching this we are god and there is this woman whose sorrow is so strong that it actually hurts us so it's like we're looking around and we find this family and then like her son dies and she is so sad and it is like so overwhelming that we have to run away to the beginning of time and this sorrow chases us there. Mm. It's like, as God, you kind of go through as like, oh, well, I'm just going to forget about this. I'm going to go through my greatest hits. Do you remember when I created the universe? <laughs> that was great. And then you start hearing her prayers again. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, well, well, let's skip forward to the dinosaurs. Those guys were cool. <laughs> well, I, mean, I like- see that. And then like the rest of the family starts getting in on the act. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you're kind of forced to then go back and deal with this family sorrow until the end where God is finally like, you know what? Just so everybody shuts up and leaves me alone, everybody (laughs) gets back together at the end. Literally every person in the world. And not only that, but two Sean Penns, like baby Sean Penn and regular Sean Penn. They're both there. We'll throw in all the Sean (laughs) Well, uh, last week I had mentioned about uh, The Great Beauty, which is a beautiful film. I just said that it was a pretentious movie about pretentious people. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people, when it comes to Terrence Malick, really don't think, I mean, think highly of him as, um, I don't want to say think highly of him. They just say that he's very self-absorbed in himself and Mm -hmm. tries to be above other people to say, look how much better I am than you. And that, that's kind of how I felt when I was watching this movie. Uh, first when I was getting into it, I was like, oh, is this going to be a preachy preachy religious movie and to an extent it is but it's so far removed from you know having a uh, a preacher up at the uh at the uh lectern talking down to you but it did feel very self-absorbed and and malik's got a new movie coming out right zach what's the new one coming out oh i don't remember it comes out sometime sometime hopefully this year people i hope (laughs) okay yeah well that's the other problem with this film too that we can get into if you want but when i looked at that trailer and i watched it probably a week or probably a week after the tree of life, I'd watched it the first Mm -hmm. time. And I was like, holy crap, this is shot in the exact same way. This has the exact, some of the same uh, actors. And Mm -hmm. it feels very much like I'm watching tree of life. Okay. And someone, someone said of that trailer, it's like, well, maybe 
you don't need to do the same thing twice or maybe you shouldn't be as self-absorbed in those kinds okay, of things. Okay, so hold on. Let's, let's, let's break that down for a sec. Sure. Because one, I think... Uh, I think that the idea that Malik is self-absorbed, I mean, I don't know the man, but sure. from reading multiple interviews with his cinematographer for this film, um, I would say that he is Malik completely uncontrolling of what happened. Mm. I mean, he allowed the camera crew to pick up cameras and just go film random things that would happen. They saw a butterfly and ended up in the film. They just shot a butterfly because it like fluttered down. They just started shooting. I'm just saying. And that's, I mean, that's set up. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but, Mm -hmm. and like he told Lubetsky that you take risks, do what you want, make like beautiful images and just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And then when we get into the edit room and we start putting this film together, you can come in and this this is what he told them. You can come in, and anything that you don't think reflects well on you, we will pull it from the movie. Like, it is gone. Like, if you don't feel confident about a shot that's being used that you did, if you don't think it works, he said he can come pull anything you want. Which is just, like, unbelievable to me that a director would ever come say that to a cinema photographer. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, no, I don't think so. I think there's some collaboration that, that goes on even at that point, too. But, I mean, I don't know if if what you're quoting was... Um, you have final say on this um, kind of thing. I mean, um, I mean certainly, that's what I mean, Lubetsky if you're showing... said. He said that Alex said he, he could come in at a room and pull out clips that he didn't think were his strongest stuff. Okay. I, yeah. I don't, I mean, the movie is very beautiful. You yeah. Know, I'll give you that. Uh, I just felt that it was very, first of all, very slow. Sure. Uh, no, I, I won't deny that. And second, that it seemed very wrapped in it in and enamored of itself. Well, and when you have a concept like, you know, the, the basic through line of this, and they keep saying it, is that argument of grace versus nature. That's a very metaphysical thing. That's a very mm-hmm. personal thing. And if your personal sort of take on it doesn't mesh with what Malik is putting on the screen, then it's going to really throw you out of it. I have a completely different problem with this film. I think this film is beautiful. I have an, an understanding and appreciation of what he was trying to say, but I have two problems with it. One is related to my theory of, of when a comic book comes out and the villain is threatening a little kid. It's like a, that's like a cheap shot. It's a shortcut to evil. I have noticed as I age, I have problems with abusive father figures. And the whole thing with Brad Pitt's character, I never really felt what was driving Brad Pitt to make him that abusive father figure character. And this is entirely personal and this is all me. And I know this is me. It's projecting and I'm bringing it to it. Jessica Chastain in this movie. um, I am 44 years old and I have in my possession, maybe a dozen pictures of my mother. One of them is from when she was 18 in 1961. Jessica Chastain looks like a slightly prettier but damn near identical version of my mom. One mm-hmm. of the only images that I have of my mother. So when I come into this movie and that abusive father figure is then beating up on the character who looks like my mother, this movie made me very angry. And mm-hmm. Rodrigo's, you know, Rodrigo's statement about that woman's pain being so palpable that it made God look back. 
that made me angry and it really made it hard for me to watch those portions of the film and hard to get into it. Sure. Even though I understood and appreciated what he was trying to say. And I felt like, you know, again, because he's trying to make such a personal statement, I'm trying to take it on a personal level. Personally, to me, there's parts of this movie that I just I don't ever want to see. again. Yeah. No, I think I I think I think Brad Pitt did an excellent job uh, here because he is. You know, from the character's point of view, he is raised in the very religious, strict environment. Uh, that's his that's his standpoint. The mother's very free spirited environment. So he knows that there are things that you have to do and, and have to do and have to do. And I think there's a part in the movie where he basically says, I do all these things. I, I do the tithing. I do this. I do these things. I do all right. these things. And, and yet, bad things still and, happen. And bad crap still happens to me. And no matter what I do... I cannot get ahead. And so he is he is conflicted and frustrated there. He's, you know, he's risen up in the ranks at the uh, plant that he was working at and he's been doing good things. He's doing what he's supposed to do and he still loses his job. Then he is this inventor. He's, you know, very talented, very smart, and yet he's having a difficult time creating that thing that that will fulfill him, that will satisfy him. And because of that, he's very frustrated and he doesn't know where to take out that frustration. And I think that's how he ends up becoming abusive to the kids and to the wife because he has nowhere else to unleash except at home. And that's where the family is. He's following the rules as he understands them. Yeah. And I feel very, I feel sorry for his character uh, a lot. I mean, I don't like, the abusive father relationship, but I feel very sad for him. I feel sad for the mother. I feel sad uh, for the kids. It is a very sad movie uh, overall. I mean, there's nothing in this movie that when I walked away, I felt inspired or lifted up or anything like that. <laughs> I felt very depressed and sad that you're right. Look at how bad the, this life was for this kid. And now he's dead. And this is his last big hurdle that he has to get over is trying to figure out, what the relationship was between his brother and his father that caused his his brother to die and and try to make that kind of adjustment going forward mm-hmm. and looking at his i mean the the whole scene where um the dad tries to rescue the drowned kid is very eye opening from the child from the from the son's point of view because suddenly they realize that their dad isn't a Superman. And I can't remember the order of the film. Sorry, it's literally been about <laughs> three months since I watched this, ever since Zach first mentioned it. Um, but I think it was shortly after the kid drowns that we find out that the, the dad has then um, lost his job and is trying to sell his inventions and going to China. And so suddenly, you know, the world seems pretty okay. Dad's kind of strict and kind of a jackass a lot of the times, uh, but he still loves his kids. But then after that moment happens, the kids realize that their dad's not Superman. Things start to unravel a little bit more. And, you know, ironically, given my remarks about my own mother, there's a really strong Freudian thread throughout that middle piece of the film. Oh, yeah. Where, where he, you know, he literally says to her, to his father, you'd kill me if you could. And, you know, dad goes away and all of a sudden everything's happy at home with mom. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff that's there that's unspoken that I feel like maybe could have been served better by a more conventional narrative. I mean, yeah, it's powerful when he starts, you know, 
killing frogs and smashing windows and stealing from the house next door. And it's powerful when, you know, he steals that woman's nighty and freaks out so bad at that first hint of sexuality that he runs and runs and runs and finally throws it in the river in fear. But I kind of feel like if I knew, I don't know, if there was more of a, of maybe a connection, maybe more of a, a traditional narrative to where I felt a little bit more about Jack rather than for Jack, I think is what I'm trying to say, that that might have been served better. I feel like it might have been more powerful in a movie that didn't spend, you know, and again, I, I don't feel like it's wasted time, but they spent 35 minutes showing us the, the literal <laughs> creation of the universe up until the present day. You know, it all feels very dreamlike. It feels very remote mm -hmm. and it's, it's yeah. hard to really say, I, you know, I can really attest to this. I can really tie into that person. I can feel how he feels, you know, even, even though obviously my own Freudian issues are in play as well. You know, you have to look at this movie and go, would it have been? Sean Penn said that he felt like a lot of the emotion that he put into it and a lot of emotion that the actors put into it was lost because of the structure of the film. Mm. Have you guys seen, um, have you guys seen Adaptation? Yes. With yeah. uh, Nicolas Cage? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny because I, I kind of feel that Adaptation did it better. I, I mean, obviously, they're two completely different movies. But uh, Adaptation is also a movie that has the entirety of the uh, a creation of the universe up until the modern, the, the point that the, the, the film starts. Um, and it was like, it's interesting because it actually explains why it's there. Um, right. But it's still like this super crazy... Uh, Although much briefer, uh, kind of like montage of things. Well, I mean, uh, when you when you when you look at the creation sequence uh, with the quote from uh, the book out of the Bible, Job's beginning was like, "Where were you when I created everything?" I mean, when you look at this as almost a retelling of that story to a sense of, sure, God, oh God, why did you do this to me? And then he being like, "Well." Hey, where were you when I created this? I mean, you can, I mean, that is there. I mean, it's not explicit. I mean, you have to come in with some knowledge or uh, an understanding of what was being said there. Well, but, but I think, I mean, you take out that yeah. one quote and everything. I mean, the, no, I think, know. I don't think so because I think the whole creation of the universe and the creation of life really points out that these events are minuscule. Oh, sure. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things. Yeah. But then they put so much is effort. It? I don't. Into, I think it's the opposite. Yeah. It's, like it's my read is it, the opposite. Yeah, it's making it seem like these these emotional, these powerful moments for Jack are as important for him. They are. But if you're looking at it from God's point of view, it's like really, guys, I did all this. Why should I be paying attention I, to you? I, again, I think the movie that is the opposite of what the movie is saying. Like, yeah. if you are going to put an opinion on in God's mouth, it's the creation of the universe is just as important as this mm. year and a half in this mm. family's yeah, life. That's that's fine. Right. Mr. O'Brien losing his job. And again, I think that it's a it's it's a valid read either way. That's what's really great and infuriating about this movie is because it's not trying to tell us a story the way many of the Zach on film movies are. I mean, you look at Cool Hand Luke. Cool Hand Luke has a lot of divergences and a lot of weird side trips and moments where there's a naked girl washing a car for some reason. But it's basically telling a story of 
man shows up, man changes the people around him, Jesus metaphor, the end. Whereas this isn't doing that. This is giving us chunks of big chunks, but chunks of his life all out of order and allowing us to put it into really whatever shape we want it to be. I'm, I'm curious. Do you, I, I'm curious if this movie would be better, worse, whatever, if you took all of the Sean Penn stuff out and all of the making of the universe, and you just told the story of the O'Briens in the 1950, the 1950s. What, would, it, would it then basically Would it be, be more coherent? Slight. Would it still be as powerful? Would it still be uh, impactful? I, I mean, this is a movie that I thought about for literally months after I watched it. Yeah. It is, it, think, is, it is very that. I'm not saying this is a bad movie. No. Just like last week, I didn't say it was a bad movie. It just... Those, the performances, um, Mrs. O'Brien and Mr. O'Brien, and God, those boys are beautiful. Those are some gorgeous little kids. There are just whole scenes where the boys are just sitting there fooling around with a fan or playing with a stick. Uh, there's one scene where they're just sitting there crying because dad lost their job. The boys are just crying, and the whole point is these two gorgeous little brothers being on screen and filling up the, the whole screen with their sadness. I think it would be, it'd still be a powerful movie, but I think it would be kind of maybe a more emotional telling of like a stand by me or what was that Kevin Costner movie? The war, you know, you, you have that, this is his past and we tell it in that linear fashion. So I feel like now I'm contradicting myself because I just said, it might be a better movie in a linear fashion, and now I'm wondering if it would be. Uh, it's just thought, a thought that I had afterwards. I was oh, like, man. well, if you took out all the Sean Penn stuff, if this wasn't really him on his deathbed having these reflection moments and the metaphor for heaven and the gates of heaven and all those things, mm-hmm. if you just told the story of the O'Briens and the struggle that they had that those couple of years in uh, Texas, well, most of uh, Jack's life uh, as a young child in Texas, if that would still make as a motivational st- a story. You know, to me, it seemed like there was actually very little of the Sean Penn scenes. And yeah. although they were the creation of the universe. Spaced. Yeah, yeah. Very short and very widely spaced. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of very much like very much just hinting at what his life is like, at the fact that he's unhappy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So if you took those out, I don't think it would affect the movie because you would need a lot more. You would need to be like, this man is unhappy and here's why. But as it is, we just kind of know that he's unhappy. But the main action of the movie is those years when he's little. So I I feel that if you took the Sean Penn scenes out, the movie wouldn't actually lose anything. I mean, I think to me, if you take the Sean Penn and the creation story out. I mean, you're telling a different story almost. Yeah. You, 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 I mean, you're changing it. And then what would that story feel like if you just get the young boy with no, uh, you know, really peaks and valleys, just like minor peaks and valleys throughout the whole yeah. thing with no conclusion at all. Besides, I mean, well, they leave their house. But yeah, but the, the driving away from the house, you have to make a hard decision and then you do that kind of that O. Henry ending off into the unknown world. That's a legitimate choice. But I think, yeah, it would make a completely different movie. Mm-hmm. I think that if you were to remove the grown-up Sean Penn parts, 
you also remove the implication that Jack is a boy going through a rough patch rather than a sadistic little villain, mm. which is kind of, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we see him doing in the past is very negative stuff. He shoots his brother just here, hold your finger. Up. Yeah. <laughs> There's that long sequence where he's like, here, stick your finger in the, in the light socket. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You're going to kill your brother. Now, speaking of killing the brother, was there any indication of how the brother died? No. No. Because I read it as suicide. That's. But I'm not sure if that's, that's metatextual or. That's how I kind of took it, too, was that the, the kid took his own life at some point. I don't think it was I, died in an accident. Actually, I just assumed he drowned. There's like mm. so much water. So much, so much that water. That was the thing I was going to bring up was that yeah. there's so much water. And I mean, there's a two elements that always stand out to me in this film is how much we return to water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, through through the creation sequence of the animals and everything, we get a pool sequence. I mean, people are in the baths. We just look at water all the time. That we is, end up in the ocean. constantly messing with a water hose. Yes. Yep. And then uh, shadows come up a lot. Uh, probably more than anything else besides water that like the shot at the beginning where it's like this upside down look at kids playing shadows and then we have yeah. a couple more shots like that um, just I don't know what you guys think about all that I just I just thought because um, Jack is on the phone with his dad saying that he thinks about it all the time that he I, I think at one point he was saying something about there was a discussion of blame um, or that he's sorry or something like that that mm. Um, that he had he had committed suicide, and then when you look at the relationship of the dad to the kids, just those kinds of things drive the uh, yeah drive him drove him to to commit suicide. I had that same that same read on the HL thing when it came to the water. It's that 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 almost the primeval thing, you know, the the great flood that wipes everything out. Mm. The water shall wash everything clean, you know, go, go be dunked in the water and you shall be forever. You know, the water is a hugely powerful metaphor that, that, mm-hmm. you know, the ocean is in just incredibly powerful throughout. So I always kind of felt like that water was almost a metaphor for the fact that, you know, you can't really trust anything in life. The water is important when he has that scene with the nighty and the water is important when, you know, the little girl drowns. So. Um, the water is maybe fate. I don't know. <laughs> fate. I'm going to go with fate. That's that's my read on it. Well, I mean, we talk about life comes from the ocean, and and water is is life, especially in Texas. Um, that's why Mr. O'Brien, Brad Pitt's character, is always concerned about making sure things are watered in the right way and things are done in the right way. But then also, water is death, right? Um, right. Death with the the kid that drowns. Uh, if you're talking about from a baptism standpoint, um, water is rebirth. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when you're looking at it from that way, and again, that kind of leads me to think that this whole movie is is Jack dying, uh, especially with the, that, you know, the final line with the mom saying, you know, I give him I give you my son, um, basically giving him up to to the universe or to God or whoever. Um, uh, yeah, water is is very powerful in this film. And I think probably the thing that makes you think that he drowned is at the very beginning when they get the uh, when they get the note that he's dead. They keep cutting back and forth to a bunch of water stuff, right? A bunch of river yeah. stuff. I'm pretty sure. 
Again, yeah, it's been a long yeah. time. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie, and by a long time, I say a couple of months. So that's because when did I watch this, Zach? November? Is that when I uh, first yeah, started probably talking to you about it and saying, "Oh man, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna have talks about this." Yeah, probably. Those are the scenes that that really, really dragged me into this movie, kicking and screaming though. Because when she screams and collapses, I'm like, "Jesus, she looks like my mom!" And again. You know, throughout this whole film, there's these moments that are just someone reacting. Brad Pitt mm-hmm. reacting in rage, or the little boys reacting, or, uh, you know, the angelic vision of the mom reacting to something. That, again, it's, you wouldn't get that in a conventional ABC narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think that those really do add to people looking at this film and going, this is definitely something special, something different, something that, you know, you're never going to see again. Some people are saying, but I, I again, I, I don't know whether it would be a stronger film if it weren't like that. It's something to where that vision, however strange and even maybe unconventional, we look at it sometimes, it doesn't even seem to make sense, but it's so strong Mm-hmm. That it drags you along for two hours and twenty minutes, you know. It's it's incredibly powerful, and I think you can't talk about this film in a theoretical sense as being anything else because the vision of we're going to do it in this weird trippy LSD kind of flashback with dinosaurs in it. I think that makes this film what it is. Mm-hmm. Whatever you, know, you think. Uh, this last time I watched it, because I watched it again this last week. Uh, I, w- I was struck that I never noticed this before, but that the really only character we never see come up through like childhood is the dad. I mean, in the beginning when we get the we get Mrs. O'Brien and she's a little girl and she has her goats and whatnot and she turns into a mom, mm-hmm. and uh, we see the birth of uh, of the son and how he raised how he comes up and his other brothers we see as babies we see the birth of the universe and how that grows and expands and everything. But we never see the like dad as a child. What do we call uh, what do we call God? Well, that's what I mean. That's what I was going to go with is that uh, to me when I when I watch this movie is that uh, if you want to extend the, the biblical uh, uh, feelings of this film is that the dad is this uh, Old Testament type of dad who has these conflicting mm-hmm. messages wrapped all around him. And then the mom is this uh, Jesus figure, which, oh, that'd, that'd be fun to well, tell my dad. I was going more along I mean, the lines as we call God the Father, right? right? And Mr. O'Brien, Brad Pitt, is the Father. Sure. God has always been there. Brad Pitt has always been there. Right. And But then, uh, I mean, the way I get to the Jesus thing is not so much... Uh, the sacrifice, which, I mean, she does by staying home and taking care of the kids all the time. But the fact that she is bringing this new way of life into, like, these kids. And when, when the big scary guy's gone, they get to have fun. And it's, like, more well, freeing and loving. And, and, and the stuff she says, right? It's all mm-hmm. it's all about love and all about understanding. Right. Yeah. Um, which is more, it is, you know, again, superficially kind of a much more of a New Testament thing than an Old yeah. Testament. Yeah. Yeah. But then it, it also, it ties back into that Oedipal thing. Where you you love the mother and you hate the father and you want to kill the father, mm. you know it. You get that that almost mythic 
level breakdown. And, you know, Stephen's point about, you know, God the Father, God the Father sort of kind of creates Mother Nature, which is the Earth, and then everything mm-hmm. comes from there. You have, you know, the, the stern All-Father, and then you have the, the loving, green embrace of Mother Earth, which then also ties you back into that whole death thing. I don't know. We could, we could take the metaphors and we could stretch them out <laughs> and turn them into taffy. But it wouldn't change the fact that this movie freaks me out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the editing of this film, I really enjoyed. And it reminded me, especially in certain sequences, uh, especially at the beginning when the mom gets the letter of her son being dead and you kind of get a lot of jump cuts and you can throw a lot of jump cuts around in here. Yeah. It really reminded me of, you know, like the French New Wave uh, type of stuff that we saw, you know, like in Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, I don't know how long ago we watched that a couple of months. And, uh, you know, I, I watched uh, most of Breathless a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and and then uh, read a little bit about it, about how, how uh, uh, Godard and his uh, editor came upon that look. And he said that the, the, the film was too long and for the studio and they had to cut it down. So they just started cutting <laughs> stuff, especially like in the car and just t- just mm-hmm. trimming down a lot of time. And um, when I was reading about this. Uh, it, it seemed to come out about, about the same way. Uh, I can't remember. It was some interview. I just pulled it out. They said, we ended up just cutting about anything that felt false. And I gave away the jump cuts, which give the movie its elliptical feeling. Uh, so I think it's interesting that, and when you, when you look at Breathless and you look at this, just from a, a pure editing style and just the jump cut, is that going into the filming process, it was not really an idea to that that's how it would be shown. But it had it came out of, these alternative ideas on how they should be presenting their film or just they had to cut it for the studio and get down to the time or Malik wanted to take out things. He didn't feel were, were the were the best stuff for the actors. And the jump it was just cuts, incredibly really, interesting. Yeah. And the jump cuts really add to the, the implications of a dreamlike state or a memory state where you remember bits and pieces of things that for some reason are emotionally tied, but not chronologically in order. Or that point in a dream where you're someplace and you know you're there, you know why you're there, but you don't really have any real idea. It just feels like, okay, I know I'm here. I should be here in the place that I used to work with my third cousin that I haven't seen in 10 years. That makes perfect sense. Your brain kind of slides by that. And when you have those jump cuts, you know, if, especially in that first part, but also it, at the point where he returns from China and things start getting really weird. Mm-hmm. And they're 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 arguing in the house, and he's outside, and we see bits, chunks, and bits, and it feels like different memories of different fights all wrapped up into one big thing that makes it even larger. Yeah. Um. Why did it take him? Uh, why did it take him three years to finally release this movie? He took him three years to edit it. He had a million. Yeah, feet probably. Of film. <laughs> I mean, you. I mean. Uh, I think Malik's kind of known for that where you know one. I mean, he, he's, he's shot two films. He has like two films shot right now. And right. people say they could be connected story wise to each other. Um, but it's just like, when will he release it? Cause he's not, I mean, he's not one that's, you know, he's not making a Marvel movie where we announced it five years and the date that it'll be released. So you have to hit that mark. I mean, he's just making his art on kind of his own time. <laughs> and, you know, 
that's something that just happens, I guess. Well, I mean, you know, there's a couple of ways that you can look at um, film production. Uh, film production can be looked at as a business, which 99.9% of, of films are a business. There's a story to be told. There's money to be made. And hopefully we're making money on this film. Now, this film did make money. I think it only cost $32 million to make, made $54 million in the box office. Um, but then there's also art films. And, you know, art takes time to create. You know, where do you draw that line between um, it's done when it's done and we need to get this done on the deadline? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's an interesting idea that brings up with Boyhood, especially this year, Mm -hmm. where producers and studios took a risk 12 years ago saying we're going to give you money to make this film. We're not going to we're not going to see a dime of it back for at least 12 years. And so, are all has a movie been made like that? No. Do most studios take risks like that? Of course not, because they wouldn't be in business to have the money to give to other people to make movies. But you know, sometimes I guess ex- exceptions are made, and they give the people creating their films room to create the film they want to make. I mean, do we know Malik, how this? Do we know how this film was financed at all? I have no, no, I have no okay. idea. I, I, I thought about while I was watching. I was like, I can't imagine anyone ever giving someone pitching this idea and like, oh, here's a couple million dollars to make this movie. Well, but I mean, crazy. even uh, I mean, the, Brad like Pitt million. and Sean Penn said that the script that they were sold on is totally different from the end result. Oh, I yeah, uh, I bet. From can't imagine. What I understand, the guy who financed it, um, basically they were working on a different movie, and Malik pitched him the film and basically built this up, built this up, and they worked on that evolution of it to the point where the guy's like, yeah, okay, this is crazy. I'll totally pay for that. Uh-huh. Uh, the River River Road Entertainment guy. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, I mean, so... Um, I mean, it's something kind of different, you know? It's almost... As, <laughs> so, I mean, not exactly the same, but it's like, when will George R.R. R. Martin put out the next Game of Thrones book? Well, and that's... You know, when he's ready to put it out. Sure, but that's why I'm asking your question, Zach, from you as the as a creator, what it, do you prefer to just say it's done when it's done? Or do you think that there needs to be a deadline and we need to be done with it from your, from your work point of view? Oh, um, well, I mean, a lot of things that I do are short. There are a lot of commercials or a, a small film for, you know, major spoilers or, or not a small film, but just a small video. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those things, I mean, for work, there's deadlines. When I do a commercial, there's a deadline that has to be done. Uh, and it goes through rounds of changes and then it's done, it's done. And we never go back to it ever again. You know, you have, you have things like that. And then, uh, things like major spoilers, kind of the same way, a little bit more relaxed when we do a video. I mean, uh, not necessarily. I mean, we create content, we got to put it out and, uh, but I mean, we're talking like a film is so much longer and so much more involved. And uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously it is good to have a deadline, uh, especially for some people where some people need a deadline so they can actually put their mind uh, to the grindstone and get stuff done where it pushes them to have a deadline. And that's a good thing. But some people might not respond to that. So it's just, I don't know to me, uh, a deadline's good for me to, get it out there and make sure I'm working consistently on something and continually 
pushing towards this final end date goal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. Rodrigo, what about you? Uh, I think that uh, I'm a big believer that restriction breeds creativity. So I think if you just hand um, a movie to a filmmaker and say, whenever you want, um, you will get back something that is probably enormous and unwieldy. Um, and maybe it's just, you know, not, not necessarily what I want, but, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, when you hear about the great movies in, in cinema and like how they were, you know, just, uh, you know, for example, Breathless, like, like Zach said, is like, well, we're, we've run into this issue. And in working around the issue, they created a brand new style of film, you know? Whereas if somebody's just like, well, here's a bunch of money, get done whenever, you might not necessarily get that, uh, or the movie might not be as good as it could have been, strangely yeah. enough. I, I, yeah, I, from the, on the business side, it's, it's incredibly risky. So you either have to believe in everything that the director, Malik, is, is um, pitching to you, or else, you know, if I would have given him $32 million and six years later I finally got the movie. And then it only made twenty, made me twenty million dollars minus all of the may not have ever made any money due to distribution and advertising and all those kinds of things. I probably wouldn't want to finance him again. Does that but, make sense from, well, from yeah, that standpoint? I, I yeah, I understand. And so you have to, I to me, you have to look at it as do does the person financing care more about? money or does he i mean does he, is he just giving money so he can make money is an investment like a stock or something most, or is he giving studios, money to most, most right. studios work that way yeah uh, yeah obviously they gotta stay in business yes, but i mean exactly. it's, it's some people uh will donate money to people to create things because they want art right and uh do we see a lot of those movies in theaters no those movies are called Kickstarter projects, and that's the great thing about Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you can take the the antecedent of those art films all the way back to the beginning of movies. I mean, D.W. Griffith doing five hours worth of what was that thing we watched? Birth of a Nation. Yeah, that is, for all intents and purposes, a movie that, while we didn't have the same strictures and we didn't have the same expectations of film, was a very experimental thing. It was it was an, an art movie. It's the equivalent of those films in, you know, the the 40s and the 50s where it's two guys walking around and having a strange avant-garde discussion of of Dadaism or abstract, whatever you want to call it. I can throw all sorts of words around. But there has to be a point where even in a commercial setting, even when I was making 30-second commercials in Hayes, Kansas for $200 a pop, there were commercials that were done when they were done. They were things that you had either more lead time or you wanted them to be something specific, something, for lack of a better word, perfect. Um, Bruce and uh, Bruce Otter and I did a series of commercials about a superhero called Sighting Guy that took us for frickin' ever by our time frame, which, you know, was usually a three or four day turnaround. We were literally months on these, but they still air, to my knowledge, in, in certain markets. So I don't know whether... You know, what, what is it that they say in the, I think the classic, uh, film text, uh, Jay and Silent Bob go to Hollywood. Matt Damon says, first you make the safe picture, then you make the art picture. 
I don't think that this guy would have let John Q. Schmuck and Z walk in off the street and pitch him on this two and a half hour monstrosity masterpiece and give him $30 million. But he was willing to bet that $30 million on the, the creativity that he knew he could get out of a Terrence Malick because Terrence Malick had made other movies. And at least one of Malick's movies had to be something that was like just a movie. They can't all be like this, are they? I don't know. I, haven't I watched need to watch, watch the trailer to The Wonder. Is it to The Wonder or Night of Cups? I forget which I, one is the new. It must be Night of Cups. Night of is Cups the is the new, new one to The Wonder that came out. Like, look look at heard. the trailer of Night of Cups, and it looks very much like Tree of Life. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there are guys who just do No, that. that's what I'm saying. But in order for Malik to get up to that, and then what I'm trying to get for into Zach's mind is... If you're going to create a Terrence Malick movie, just like you said, Matthew, you have yeah. to do the safe picture first. You have, and, you have to have something established. And you have to deliver something. If it's going to be six years late or six years from start to finish, uh, if you're going to deliver something over that time period, it needs to be good enough to where it's going to get you that next grace period to say, hey, I've got this other idea. It's going to take me eight years to do or whatever. Um, so that people will continue to finance you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you do, you need to not think that I'll just get it done when I get it done. And it's my art and I'm an artist. And I mean, there's in film, unfortunately is a business and people have to take in those things into account. Um, but there's still a place for Ingmar Bergman to play chess with saying, the devil. I'm not saying that there's not. No, um, and Rodrigo kind of ex- uh, went into detail with that when he said that uh, about creativity. Um, but I just want Zach to be aware that just being Terrence Malick doesn't give you free reign to do anything that you want, <laughs> or it right. shouldn't. It shouldn't give you free reign to do anything you want. And unfortunately, I see a lot of people who see something like Terrence Malick does, or see. I mean, even looking at Quentin Tarantino. Uh, with Kill Bill. Um, that was supposed to be one movie, and the studios were like, hell no, we're not releasing one four-hour movie. We'll never make any money off of it. Um, that people get in this mindset of, well, Terrence Malick does this, and Quentin Tarantino does this, and so-and-so does this, then it's perfectly okay for me to do this as well. And I don't think that's quite right. Oh, I mean, no, certainly not. Because, I mean, I mean, one you haven't earned that. And two, you're not those people. Right. And so why should you try well, to be copying them in the first but there's place? There's a lot of people that are very, feel very entitled for that reason. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think you're people. one of those. I don't think you're one of those people, but there are many people out there. Um, especially new filmmakers that feel that way. Well, everybody wants to think that they're the next guy. I mean, if last week we were looking at, you know, what is it? Paolo Sorrentino mm-hmm. did not necessarily the same thing, but I think in a lot of ways, something Equally outre, equally out of place in terms of a modern movie expectation, at least for me. I don't know about you guys. Um, but when we watched The Great Beauty for five and a half hours, what was it? it was three days, two hours and six minutes, whatever it was. Yeah, it was definitely a movie that would not have been as effective, I think, if he had been specifically under the same sort of strictures that Michael Bay would be on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So, yeah, I, I definitely, I don't disagree with you. 
But I think that if you have that film and you feel like you have that film in you, absolutely make your safe pictures to earn the clout that will allow you to do your tree of life and, and torture me emotionally for three days. Yeah. What else <laughs> you want to talk about, Zach? Um, I mean, the only thing I had left on the slate to talk about was uh, something you hit, hit on earlier was just like director style and something that we've come on. Um, you know, it's something that we talk about with certain directors, especially I, when I think of a director style specifically standing out, I think of, I mean, I think of Terrence Malick, uh, I think of Wes Anderson and, yeah. you know, Edgar Wright. They all do things that have their kind of thing on it. I mean, I, and, and especially Michael Bay has this also. But when I think of that, I think those like kind of those three people. Um, you know, it did come out when Knights of Cups trailer, Terrence uh, Malick's new film, that, you know, there were some elements that felt a lot like uh, The Tree of Life. Mm-hmm. And so people said, oh, okay, Malik's going back to the well. He's going back to the well and he's doing this again. And um, certainly there's some of that. But to me, when I see, when I watch the next trailer for Wes Anderson and everything is whimsical and centered, I go, great. Wes Anderson has made another movie. Let's go watch it. <laughs> right. 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 And so well, there's something to this where you don't get uh a Wes Anderson movie every year. You can get uh some blockbuster action movie and it really won't matter who made it. You get those, you know, 20 times a year mm-hmm. where we don't get films from people that I don't know, stretch the norm of what is being done in film. So to me, when a director is doing his thing and it's a thing that I super enjoy, then uh, I go bring it. I mean, like I don't. I'm not gonna get tired of it. Like, why would yeah. I mean? In, 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 I think of you, Stephen. Where when I first talked about Moonrise Kingdom, you go you, Wes Anderson, that guy with Bill Murray, and they all talk yeah. flat, and yeah. and it's all because yeah, I do not like. I do not like those movies. Right, you don't like and it. Stop motion. And, and then now, uh, I mean, you love Grand Budapest Hotel this year. I do. I really love that. But see, here's yeah. the thing: you can look at. Uh, a trailer for a Michael Bay movie and you know what you're going to get. You can look at uh, Knight of Cups and the trailer for uh, The Tree of Life and you can say, well, these look like the exact same movies. I know what I'm going to get. With Wes Anderson, though, especially with Grand Budapest Hotel, he's telling a love story, but he's telling it with a lot more action and a lot more life in the characters than what we have seen before in... um, in some of his other movies, especially when, especially with a lot of the dead acting in the, uh, um, the very first one that he did. Royal Tenenbaums. Right. Royal Tenenbaums. Right. So you're actually seeing growth in the director. When we look at a director like Steven Spielberg, sure. In the seventies, you knew that he was that horror director. You you knew him from Jaws and Poltergeist and those kinds of things. Then in the eighties, he became that, that fantasy director of, um, uh, uh, E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then in the 90s, he became that guy who just lost his shit and did Peter Pan, uh, Hook. (laughs) And then he evolved and became that guy who did Schindler's List, right? And there is a transformation from the director to be, to do something different, to grow. Uh, And that's what I think you've done, I mean, in this time. And I think we've all done this in in our time, is that we grow and we learn and we try to do something 
different each time. But if you end up kind of being stuck in the same rut, you're going to be stuck in the same rut. And but, and that's certainly a thing. And I, I guess, so I guess where I, I'm coming from yeah. more so is that uh, let's not... Uh, from my point of view, let's not be upset that Terrence Malick is doing another Terrence Malick film, but let's be excited that it's a Terrence Malick film and it'll look like nothing else we watch in right. the theater all year. And, you know, you could say the same thing of like a, a David Lynch or a Tim Burton. Their movies are tonally, in many ways, very similar. A Tim Burton movie will generally have the same actors and the same color palette, sometimes the exact same actors. But you know you're going to get, in most cases, I didn't like uh, Charlie Chocolate, but you're going to get something that isn't quite what you get from your average movie. And even if you don't like that Tim Burton, that Wes Craven, that Wes Anderson kind of aesthetic, you're going to get something that isn't exactly that same movie that you can go and see four of oh, any multiplayer. There, you know, there's, I think what Zach was getting to is there's something safe about knowing what you're getting, right? Mm hmm. Um, I'm me personally, I'm not that, that person. Uh, that's not how, that's not what starts my engine, right? That's why I can't, I don't read the walking dead anymore because it becomes repetitive and I know what I'm, what I'm getting time and time again. It's why I don't read a lot of the, the superhero, uh, genre because it's the same thing again and again and again. And when I start seeing a lot of the same again and again and again and again, I walk away because I need something different. I need something that stretches and grows my mind and my boundaries and forces me to think about things a little differently instead of the same thing again and again and again. That's me personally. That may not be the way it is for a lot of people. A lot of people may be very happy to see, um, you know, uh, the Terrence Malick film that is very different from what they've seen, but very much uh, an exact copy of another Terrence Malick film. And I'm not saying that the Knight of Cups is that way. Um, but if it is, then they're, you know, people feel very comfortable with that. It is interesting, though, because there's no, I mean, there's no film technique that is necessarily uh, empirically better or worse. There's this language that we've agreed on right. makes for a normal movie, right? It's like if you look at Die Hard and you look at, I don't know, Failure to Launch, they actually share the same visual language, even though they're very different movies. Um it's like the cuts are this It's just, you know, you just cut to another thing when time has passed or you go to something else. You know, there's no like weird wipes or anything like that. But when a director or a, or a creative team or something like that has like developed its own language that they like, it kind of becomes this very specific style. And because other movies don't share it, it becomes a big deal. You know, if mm -hmm. you look at Star Wars... You know, Star Wars had this thing going where it was like this hearkening back to the old things, right? right, right. But now, nowadays, the wipe is kind of synonymous with that action fantasy thing. Yeah. You see a lot more wipes. You see a lot more stuff like that in movies that are trying to evoke that. Right. And it's because it uh, had its own language. And, and obviously, everybody borrows stuff from the past, but kind of created this uh, lexicon for itself. And then people were like, I like that. So they absorbed it. Well, and I think oh. Oh, you're also kind of talking the same way with Zack Snyder with he's got a style, the slow, fast, yeah. slow stuff that happens sure. with the fast, yeah. slow, fast. People recognize that and then they know what they're getting with that. 
Yeah, but but you also see it uh, start to creep into other things, right? Um, because that that is you know your slow motion action scene, you know that we've seen, you know we've we've seen it for a long time. You know the Matrix had a, a strong take on it. Um, you know uh, Michael Bay loves it. Um, you know that itself has become part of part of the language, and yeah, Zack Snyder puts a a little I don't know a little dubstep into it, but um, <laughs> it is kind of that same thing, and it's like something that that is kind of agreed upon. So when you get someone like Malik, who is like, well, I don't even really want this to have any structure. Like it it kind of creates a style, and people get weirdly tired of it because you put they're putting aside those conventions right it's like i know how time passes in a movie i have learned that from ever since i watched you know the uh disney's winnie the pooh all the way through like the last <laughs> thing that i saw in the theater time passes the same way but when a director changes that it's weird and if a director keeps using that sometimes people get Sometimes people are really into it. Sometimes people get tired of it, but it's no longer seamless. It it's a thing. It's a point. It's something that's happening. But kind of also to agree on on Zach's point about you don't get a, a Terrence Malick film every year. That's kind of the nice thing about a director who kind of steps into that territory. You go in, you watch a Terrence Malick film, and you've got six years before the next right. one, or five years before the next right. one, so that you've and I don't want to say to wash the taste out of your mouth to cleanse your palate. So that the next time the the Terrence Malick film comes out or the Paul Thomas Anderson film comes out, you're ready to go in and absorb that um, and experience it again. But if if you had if Terrence Malick was putting out a film every year, I think people would grow really tired really quickly of it. Oh, sure. And yeah, I mean, that's I mean, that's why uh, films like these stand out, because they go against the norm of what we're seeing week in and week out of the theater, right? I mean, it's, it's throwing mm-hmm. conventions against the wall and then rescattering them and trying to make a movie out of them. Uh, so, uh, any last thoughts, anyone? Matthew, Rodrigo, Steven? Uh, I say, I was going to say, go check, go watch the movie. I mean, I encourage everybody to watch all the movies that we've discussed on Zach on film. And I think there's something in here to watch and something to absorb and something to learn and something to see. Um, and I think there's something that you can take away from it. And I think, honestly, I think what you take away is going to be very personal to you in this story. I don't think everyone is going to have a general consensus takeaway thing from, from uh, mm-hmm. Tree of Life. Rodrigo? Um, I think that this movie could have done with a little bit more restraint, even with the lack of structure and even with all that stuff. That's all fine. But it's amazing that there's a movie out there where we got to the part where there were dinosaurs and I was bored. So (laughs) I think I think everything about that, I, I think a lot of things about this movie lack restraint. And that is something that really put me off of it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with it. And if you are someone who's a little bit more patient than me, you might very well enjoy this movie. Anything else, Matthew? Uh, if you do choose to watch this movie, prepare to be very, very depressed. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> All right. yes. No doubt. All right. So that will be it for this week's episode of Zach on Film. Head over to Majorspoilers.com. 
where you can find the podcast posting page and give your thoughts about our discussion or your own thoughts about the tree of life. While you're there, click on that Amazon.com link. We could probably buy your very own Blu-ray copy of Tree of Life if you would like, or any other movies we talk about, Zach on film, or anything else you would need in your daily day to to existence. It's not going to cost you any extra, but a little bit. Welcome back to Major Spoilers, you know, just to help with equipment costs and just uh, keep the heat running at Major Spoilers HQ. Uh, So that's it. Next week, we wrap up this whole shebang as we tack 12 Years a Slave on Zach on Film. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.